According to reports by the Wall Street Journal's Michael Bender, then-President Trump and his chief of staff John Kelly got into an argument going over the details while en route to festivities commemorating the armistice of World War I. The president was attempting to claim that Adolf Hitler had done a lot of good things, particularly by the way he improved Germany's economy. If you can find anyone saying anything positive about Adolf Hitler, it's typically that his initial handling of Germany's economic recovery. And while it is true that many of his contemporaries admired how both Germany and fellow fascist Italy emerged out of the Great Depression, we now have the gift of hindsight, and that allows us to see how those recovery efforts led directly to World War II and the Holocaust. I bring this up not to talk about the former president, rather I bring it up to introduce the response that came from the mouth of the president's chief of staff, John Kelly, who put it bluntly, saying, even if it were true that Hitler was solely responsible for rebuilding the economy, on balance you cannot ever say anything supportive about Adolf Hitler. You just can't. Good advice from the former Marine General. Having survived 2020, I can confidently say that no one in the future has thus invented time travel yet. Otherwise, there is no reasonable explanation for why someone wouldn't have come back to warn us about a few of the events that occurred in 2020. The start of this century's Roaring Twenties had a number of people remembering the highs of the 1920s and the lows that quickly followed in the subsequent decade. In just one year, it felt like we experienced both the Roaring Twenties and the Crippling Thirties on one high-speed roller coaster. Time travel often comes up in my classes, and we begin to talk about Adolf Hitler. Students will often pose the question of whether or not you'd be willing to time travel back in time for the sole purpose of killing baby Hitler. The question doesn't bother me in class because I know enough about the events that led to his rise to be able to suggest going back in time to fix a number of issues that would have prevented the rise of Nazi Germany and its Fuhrer. For instance, one could travel back to June 28, 1914 in order to change the parade route of Austrian-Hungarian Archduke Franz Ferdinand. That would have saved lives through the prevention of World War I, which was where Adolf figured out his knack and desire for leadership. If that failed, you could then transport yourself to the Treaty of Versailles negotiations and right a number of wrongs that backed the German people into such a corner that they came to believe that a Hitler-led regime was in their best interest. Finally, there are a number of opportunities to go back and prevent the rise of Hitler without debasing yourself by murdering a child. What if Hitler had never been promoted to the position of chancellorship? What if the Reichstag building hadn't burned to the ground? which in turn allowed him to claim a legislative majority? What if the British and French had shown some backbone rather than pursuing appeasement? What if the wind had been blowing slightly stronger on the day that Hitler was wounded with mustard gas? What if the police had been a better shot at the beer hall push? What if Hitler had gotten into art school to fulfill his life's passion? 
What if he had been able to make friends in school? What if he had a father who was less strict, and a mother who was willing to be more stern with her child? My students are always disappointed with this laundry list. The question about time traveling to kill baby Hitler is designed as one of the great philosophical dilemmas. We can likely all agree that it would be the right thing to do to time travel back to Germany in 1934 and dispatch the fully formed and racist adult Hitler. It was in that year that Nazi physicians had begun to euthanize those that the state deemed to be sick and or disabled. But a baby is a different discussion, as we believe that babies are born innocent. Even considering debates between nature versus nurture, nearly all believe that a baby can grow up to be anything from the sweetest and most loving of children to unfortunately in this case, genocidal maniacs. To put it another way, if you just got upset that the Nazis were euthanizing disabled children, then you have to be at least slightly against traveling back in time to murder a child in its crib, even if that child will grow up to be Adolf Hitler. New York Times Magazine posed this absurd question to its readers in 2015. The mostly liberal audience answered like this, 42% were willing to go back in time to kill the child, 30% were a staunch no, and 28% would at least think about it, but weren't sure what their final answer would be. This spurred a debate that raged throughout 2015 and still continues in my classroom today. But in order to make sure that we aren't among the 28% that remain in the not-sure category, let's look a little deeper into the child that became a dictator, into the boy that became a murderer, and at the young man that would be responsible for the worst atrocity in human history. This is episode one in our series on Adolf Hitler. The Early Years If you ask students what they know about Adolf Hitler, one finds only a minuscule amount of information and most of it relates to World War II and the Holocaust. Intelligent students will be able to correctly identify that he wasn't German, that he rose through a shady but democratic process, that he tried to take over the world, and that he really didn't like the Jewish people. An occasional few might even know that Adolf was missing his left testicle, something that comedian George Carlin was able to exploit in one of his most famous stand-up routines. The likely reason for this missing part of his anatomy was about of syphilis. Still, this fact has spawned plenty of speculation, as does every single fact regarding Adolf Hitler's life. Rod Rosenbaum is the author of Explaining Hitler, a work of history that attempts to explain why this one man became a psychopath responsible for the death of tens of millions of people. The book is a collection of possible explanations, but none of them can be verified as the single reason that he turned out the way that he did. In Hitler's case, it is nearly impossible to separate historical fact from absurd fiction. My absolute favorite explanation in Rosenbaum's stellar work is the Billy Goat Bite Theory. The story played off of Adolf's missing left testicle, 
and went further to argue that Adolf had further malformations in that particular area of his body. The story originated with Private Eugene Wasner, who claimed to have attended the same school as Hitler. Wasner claims that the young boy had attempted to urinate in the mouth of a goat, and the goat struck back at the thing that was closest to its teeth. I'll let Rosenbaum wax poetic for the moment, as he writes that the billy goat bite was like the single shudder in the loins in Yeats, Leda and the Swan, like the single bite of the apple in Genesis, an act of appetite from which whole histories of sorrow and tragedy would ensue. A moment of metamorphosis that can explain Hitler's crimes as the result of a terrible trauma that made him crazy. A moment of metamorphosis that could engender the Holocaust from Hitler's craziness alone rather than his willful determination. The billy goat becomes a kind of scapegoat upon which the believer projects and thereby purges his own guilt. That last statement is really revealing. While it would be wonderful to time travel back to this precise moment in order to take a video to be used to embarrass Hitler to such a point that he would never seek public attention, explaining Hitler purely as a psychopath serves to excuse all of the individuals that encouraged, voted for, and supported his policies. Simplifying Hitler only serves to excuse everyone else that was involved in his atrocities. My favorite college course at Indiana University was a 300-level course on the Holocaust. The professor began that course with two simple charges for his students. First, deny any Holocaust deniers. Amazingly, there are still many out there that hold this ridiculous belief. In my nearly two decades of teaching, I have only indirectly encountered a handful of these idiots. His second charge to us was to not let one man take the blame for what was everyone's fault. The story of the Holocaust and Adolf Hitler ends with the world at large. But the main character in the story is and will remain Adolf Hitler. We'll start the story of how he became the figurehead for evil at the beginning, making sure to flesh out as much as we can of who Adolf Hitler really was. As is always the case, the condensed movie version of history that our students can recite back to us isn't quite as detailed as the book form. So let's learn more about Hitler the man. He was born on April 20th, 1889. 18 years before his birth in 1871, Germany completed its unification after experiencing centuries as a confederation of smaller states. That wasn't the only important change that was occurring. European nations had just participated in the Berlin Conference five years before Adolf was born. This process carved up Africa and served it to the European powers, paving the way for an era of colonialism. These events were not unrelated, as Germany's sudden emergence as an imperial power signified that the 20th century would likely be one of great change. 
Still, Hitler didn't arrive as a herald or even to much fanfare. He was born in Braunau, Austria, a small town near the German border. The area was known for strong sympathies for their German neighbors. This general preference for Germany among the people, plus Adolf's dislike of anything that his father preferred, put Adolf on the eventual path towards Berlin. His father was Alois Schickelgrubel, who went by the last name of Schickelgruber, which was his mother's maiden name, due to the fact that he was illegitimate via his mother who was unmarried. The gap in knowledge over his grandfather's identity becomes part of Adolf's journey later on. Thirteen years before his son was born, Alois managed to get the legal authorities to allow him to utilize the last name of his stepfather, Johann George Hitler. On the certificates, however, it was spelled wrong, and from that point forward, Alois Schuckelgruber introduced himself as Alois Hitler. Alois did not have a charmed life by any means. His church proved to be difficult to the point that instead of a last name on his baptismal certificate, the priest in charge merely wrote, illegitimate. His mother died when he was 10, and he was forced to live with his stepfather's younger brother. He worked for five years as a cobbler before joining the Austrian civil service as a customs agent at the age of 18. Alois was a stickler for his work. The customs agency was a semi-military organization, and Alois always wore his Habsburg uniform. He quickly rose through the ranks until he had a ceiling due to his lack of formal schooling. He was married three times in his life. The first occurred when he hit age 36. The couple separated by mutual agreement after it became clear that he was participating in multiple affairs. Upon his first wife's death, he married his longtime mistress, a woman 24 years his junior. She grew sick with a lung disorder, and Clara Pultz, the eventual mother to our subject, came to the house in order to look after Alois's wife and two children. Clara would be pregnant shortly after Alois's second wife passed away. With such a complicated backstory, it wasn't simple for the couple to legitimize their relationship, which they desperately sought to do so that Alois's children would not have to live with the stain of a certificate that painted the scarlet letter of illegitimate on them. The exact identity of Alois's father was unclear, but there were a couple of leading contenders for the honor, but few of them painted a romantic picture for the would-be newlyweds. There was one possibility that made Alois and Clara cousins, and another plausible possibility that made her his half-niece. There are even questions that Hitler's grandfather may have been Jewish. With scandalous questions swirling, he was forced to appeal to the Catholic Church for a humanitarian waiver. The 47-year-old Alois and the 16-year-old Clara were married in a quick ceremony 
partly in order for Alois to go to work after the deed was done. According to some reports, even after they were married, the two continued to refer to each other as uncle and niece. Clara was also Austrian by birth, but there's less known about her. She was from a peasant family, and her life seemed devoted to her family. She was described as sweet and caring by multiple individuals, and many have posited that she is the only person who ever truly loved her son. Tragic events made it so that Adolf would soon be all that she had. Their first child was a son named Gustav. A year later, Ida was born, and a year after that, Otto came into this world. All three children died of disease before they reached the age of three. Their fourth child was Adolf Hitler, and he was thereafter followed by two other children, Edmund, five years later, and Paula, a year after that. Clara also had to care for her two stepchildren, Alois Jr. and Angela. The two parents were as radically different as their ages were. Alois was a stern authoritarian who paid little interest to his children. He for sure physically abused his children, at least by the standards of today. It's unclear how much was abusive behavior and how much was just the parenting style of the day. If you haven't realized, there is less known about all of these characters than we would like. Part of this is the fact that Adolf, an infamous liar and propagandist, went to great lengths to hide nearly all details about his personal life. The information that we have comes due to a great effort by a number of historians, most of whom risked their lives by asking important questions about who Hitler the man was. Clara, on the other hand, was a doting mother who likely considered Adolf to be her miracle baby, the baby that lived. She devoted the entirety of her life to raising her children, while Alois devoted his to work. It left an impression. To the very end, Adolf Hitler carried a picture of his mother wherever he went, even to the day of his death. When Adolf was six years old, his father retired from the Austrian civil service. He was 58 years old and had been working for 40 years. The pension that he qualified for was enough to move his family out to a small farmhouse with nine acres of land. Rather than serving to bring him closer to the family, the additional time at home only made things worse. According to credible reports, he was regularly abusive towards Clara even to the point of physically harming her in front of the children. He never fully took to the life of a subsistence farmer. His family lost money, his property declined in value, and he was afforded more time to drink, oftentimes starting out with a glass of wine each morning at the local bar. When he got home, there was plenty of arguing. So much so that Alois Jr. abandoned the family after a particularly violent argument. Instead of alerting him to the damage that he was inflicting, he turned his focus and attention to the next oldest remaining son in the house, Adolf. 
The family moved a few times as their father seemed restless in retirement. In 1889, they downsized to a smaller house adjacent to a cemetery. In 1900, the family experienced more tragedy when Edmund tragically died from measles at the age of five. After both the rise and fall of the Nazi leader, chroniclers dug up every detail that they could find about the person that had been the Fuhrer. One of the details that stood out to me was a report from neighbors who claimed that they regularly saw young Adolf sitting on his open windowsill for hours at night, staring in deep contemplation towards the cemetery that contained his younger brother's grave. None of this is designed to make you weep for Adolf Hitler. This is the man that will go on to personally push for the total eradication of the Jewish people. Rather, I put it out there in an attempt to understand how an innocent boy can transform into a man that was capable of doing what he did. The boy that was sitting on that windowsill hadn't done anything that would have inspired a would-you-go-back-in-time-to-shoot-him debate. He was just a lonely child in a crappy situation sitting beneath the stars in Austria, thinking about what could have been. In 1903, Alois Hitler suffered a severe lung hemorrhage and passed away. Adolf was 13 years old. As you might imagine, his son was more relieved than depressed at the news of the death of his father. Finally free of an oppressive force in his life, one has to wonder what would have become of him had not tragedy struck again a mere three years later. In 1906, his mother Clara found a lump on her breast that was cancerous and terminal. She would pass away at the end of 1907 after undergoing a year's worth of extremely painful experimental chemotherapy. In Mein Kampf, Hitler's autobiography, which is riddled in lies both brazen and subtle, Adolf claimed to have honored his father, but loved his mother. It was the three years after his father's death and before his mother's untimely demise that he regularly referred to as the best years of his life. In appreciation and remembrance for his mother's doctor, Edmund Bloch, who happened to be Jewish, he greenlit Bloch's successful emigration from Austria to the United States in 1940. Unlike all other Jews living in his territories, the Bloch family was also allowed to sell their possessions at market value while being explicitly protected from the Gestapo. When the doctor reached America, he was deposed by the CIA and had this to say regarding the subject. Quote, While Hitler was not a mother's boy in the usual sense, I never witnessed a closer attachment. Their love had been mutual. Clara Hitler adored her son. She allowed him his own way whenever possible. For example, she admired his watercolor paintings and drawings and supported his artistic ambitions in opposition to his father, at what cost to herself one may guess. 
This deference to her son is best shown through the schooling record of young Adolf. His father had long desired that his son follow in his footsteps and join the Austrian civil service. Wanting to make sure his son did not hit the same ceiling that he did, he was expected to excel at his schoolwork. Based upon everything that I've revealed so far, it's easy to understand why the boy would reject this course. Anything the father supported, the son opposed. Adolf's choices and lack of success in the school subjects that Alois thought were important became a regular flashpoint for family quarrels. He entered formal school at age six, one year before his older half-brother decided to abandon the family. This was also at the same point that his father retired and moved the family to their farmhouse. Adolf became enrolled in a Catholic monastery where he participated regularly in the choir and was said to have a lovely singing voice. It is here that he likely took an interest in what would become known as the German swastika, the symbol of the Nazi party. Throughout the monastery were hooked cross symbols. When Hitler decided to take the symbol of his own, he utilized the German word of Hakenkreuz, rather than the Hindu term swastika. To those who don't know of this childhood connection, it becomes curious as to why a racist German obsessed with blonde hair and blue eyes would adopt a religious symbol from India. The fact that Hitler went on to refer to the symbol with a uniquely untranslatable German term hints that he viewed his swastika and the Hindu version as distinctly different from each other. Hitler performed well at the monastery and by all accounts was happy. At this point in his life, he even sought out a future as a Catholic priest. In Mein Kampf, which again should be noted as primarily a propaganda piece for Hitler, he wrote, quote, Again and again I enjoyed the best possibility of intoxicating myself with the solemn splendor of the dazzling festivals of the church. It seemed to me perfectly natural to regard the abbot as the highest and most desirable ideal, just as my father regarded the village priest as his ideal. Hitler and an interrogation regarding his relationship with religion probably deserves its own section at a later point in this series. The short version of it is that he started out deeply religious and ended his life as an atheist. Somewhere in between, however, he realized the power that Christianity held and sought to manipulate it for his own gain. The concept of the Third Reich is a uniquely Christian concept. This meant using their language to paint himself as a savior as well as manipulating their symbols for his own gain. Besides getting in trouble at age 9 for smoking a cigarette, he appeared to live a somewhat normal childhood while his parents were both alive. His favorite game to play was Cowboys and Indians, and he became obsessed with German Karl May's old Shatterhand book series. During World War II, he actually forced his men to carry his collection of May's books from bunker to bunker. Each move that the family made meant that Adolf had to begin again at another school. 
While they were living next to the cemetery, he began to showcase skill at art, particularly in drawing buildings. He hoped to pursue a career in art, but his father disapproved and instead enrolled him in a technical school that would focus on math and science. For his father, this was the obvious choice, if his son was going to follow his footsteps and join the Austrian bureaucracy. Adolf clearly was capable of succeeding in high school. No one can rise to a government leadership position if they are incapable of passing basic algebra or chemistry. The constant moves, disruptive home life, and a desire, at least subliminal, to do the opposite of whatever his father wanted resulted in consistently poor grades. Additionally, Adolf never felt like he fit in. Described as a country boy, he claimed to have been picked on by the more sophisticated city kids. He struggled so much that he was held back and began his sophomore year as the oldest kid in the class. Instead of recognizing this as a sign that he needed to change his ways, he utilized his age to rally other excluded misfit kids around himself showcasing innate leadership qualities and a foreboding sense of wrongdoing hitler organized these friends into a disruptive force within the school despite these troubling signs he began passing all of his classes with the exception of math it was during this year that adolf became entranced by the study of history Dr. Leopold Potts unknowingly opened up the young boy's imagination towards the greater German nation. Lessons regarding Bismarck, Frederick the Great, and the Boer War, during which Germany aided the African rebellion against the British, created a one-sided love affair between Adolf and Germany. Behind this affection, however, was the clear realization that his appreciation for Germany ran contrary to his father's love and support of Austria. Hitler and his friends even utilized the German greeting of Heil and would pledge the German anthem during the times that they were required to stand and state the Austrian anthem. Things in school truly went sideways upon the death of his father. Obviously, Alois shouldn't have ever physically abused his children or his wife. But some level of authoritarianism as a parent is necessary. Clara had served as a counterbalance to his stern father. But upon his death, she never adjusted to the role of sole parent slash influencer on her son. She allowed him to get away with anything and was always willing to offer an excuse for his failures. Worse, as Alois' sole living son, Adolf was entitled to a portion of his father's pension, meaning that he had enough money to get by without assistance from others. Absolute power corrupts absolutely, and the youthful belief in your own indestructibility plus money in your pocket sure feels like absolute power to a teenager. He once again began to fail his classes, particularly French. Although he liked to read, he was purposefully uncooperative and refused to do the bidding of his teachers. His gang of misfits began causing increasing trouble, including giving contrary, insulting, and argumentative answers designed to get a laugh out of their classmates. 
They even released cockroaches into the classroom and rearranged the furniture to their liking. His teachers described him as an agitator, a bully with delusions of grandeur. His classmates claimed that he was short-tempered, spoiled, violent, and high-strung. Both classmates and teacher agreed that he was lazy and undisciplined. One teacher from the school later revealed this insightful tidbit about the Nazi leader, saying he reacted with ill-concealed hostility to advice or reproach. At the same time, he demanded of his fellow pupils their unqualified subservience, fancying himself in the role of the leader, at the same time indulging in many a less innocuous prank of a kind not uncommon among immature youth. As a teacher myself, I think it's important to mention that annoyances and pranks such as these probably shouldn't be enough for assassination by time travel. However, it becomes clear that this is when the Fuhrer's personality begins to truly set in. We'll go into this in more detail during our episode about World War II, but for a brief moment I want to take a peek into a major decision that likely swung D-Day for the Allied forces. Hitler had under his command one of the great military minds in world history, Erwin Rommel. Rommel was a decorated officer who is credited with being the first great mind to master the use of tanks on the battlefield. Rommel was good to the point that he had the full respect and fear of those that he fought. He had, however, disobeyed the fear a few times too many, and had lost his favor. The Nazis knew as early as 1943 that D-Day was coming, but they disagreed on how to repel it. Because of his failure to defeat the Allies in Northern Africa, Rommel was removed from his position overseeing the Atlantic Wall, and was stripped of the control of the tank, or panzer, divisions. Although he no longer had final say, Rommel desperately advocated that the tank divisions ought to be spread out along the coast, as a form of static defense rather than a mobile one. It was his belief that Allied air power would be able to delay or destroy the tanks while they were en route to the eventual landing spot, thus negating their mobility value. Had Rommel's plan been enacted, German tanks would have been within 10 miles of the American landing on Omaha Beach, rather than 110 miles away on that fateful day. Instead of trusting his proven and qualified commander, Adolf demanded that he alone had control of the Panzer Division, and everything else. This was despite the fact that he had zero experience with tanks, and had never managed to prove himself worthy of any level of tactical respect from either his generals or adversaries. Allied landings began at 6.30 a.m. on June 6, 1944. Adolf was informed of the news at noon. His aides and military commanders had been afraid to wake him from his sleep, fearful of waking his rage a rage similar to that which Adolf had experienced regularly while living beneath his father's roof. Unable to recognize the greatest military gamble in history for what it was, Adolf didn't allow the tanks under his control to move until 4 p.m. Once the Allies had reestablished a firm foothold on the continent, the end of Hitler's story had already been written. 
He was 55 years old, and in 10 months, he would die in a bunker overrun by Soviets. Let's return to what that teacher claimed about age 14 Adolf. He reacted with ill-concealed hostility to advice or reproach. At the same time, he demanded that his fellow pupils their unqualified subservience, fancying himself in the role of the leader. Teachers have a way of seeing who we truly are. It's one of the reasons that mentor teachers are able to have such an outsized influence on us. So what should the teacher have done in dealing with this pupil that was such a regular problem in the classroom? First, I would involve his parents. I would expect his father, who was the authoritarian, to put his thumb on the kid to make sure that he began acting appropriately. But his father had already passed, and his mother wouldn't be of any help. She had a way of deflecting blame to everyone else as she was incapable of seeing her own surviving son in any negative light. Considering that she was also fighting off cancer, it's highly unlikely that she would have been able to help get her son back on track. The second step would have then meant stepping into one of these roles and taking the student underneath your wing in an attempt to course correct. Adolf needed a positive role model in his life. This never happened. Instead of staying and addressing the problem, the Hitler switched schools during his 15th year of life, moving to Steyr. This was likely a decision made by a mother who was more interested in blaming the school for her son's failure than looking in the mirror. It's also possible that Adolf was so obnoxious that no teacher was willing to take him under their wing. Take his French teacher, for instance. This teacher was willing to put aside his own ethical obligations by altering Adolf's grade from failing to deficient on one condition and one condition only, that Adolf never set foot in his classroom again. A teacher has to really dislike a kid to throw away their core belief that students earn their grades rather than having them given. As you have probably guessed, a new school did not improve Adolf's shortcomings. In Steyr, he received failing grades in math, German, and French. He nearly failed handwriting. He did manage to pass his semester exams. He was so pleased with himself that afterwards he got drunk and passed out on the street. This happens to be the last time that Adolf Hitler consumed alcohol. The experience of being woken up in the street by the local milkwoman was too much for him to handle. His sobriety was also another example of him striving to be the opposite of his father. I would say that if you completely disagree with me on the whole don't time travel to kill baby Hitler, and if you have access to a time machine right now, this is likely the easiest moment for you to take your shot. But since I am still talking about the guy, my guess is that you don't have access to a working time machine either. This also proved to be the last time that Adolf would sit for traditional school exams. Experiencing pain from dealing with his apparently genetic ailment of a bleeding lung, he chose to skip his second semester exams and dropped out. Now at age 16, Adolf Hitler was free to do what he wanted. 
His father's pension check arrived each month and his days were free of any responsibility. Of this time, it was said that he liked to sleep late and then go out in the afternoon, often dressed like a young gentleman of leisure. He even carried with him a fancy little ivory cane. Although he describes a childhood of abject poverty in Mein Kampf, Adolf's life was filled with tragedy, but not poverty. He regularly spent time at the theater, particularly watching Wagner's operas. Wagner would play an outsized role in the formation of Hitler's ideology as it exposed him to both German nationalism and anti-Semitism. In 1907, he decided to begin his preferred life by leaving his ailing mother, who was going through chemotherapy, and headed to Vienna to pursue his dream of becoming an artist. His mother would die later that year. This artistic desire had always been a part of who Hitler was at his core, but he had been forbidden to follow his passion by his father. Paintings by Adolf Hitler still survive today, and you can look them up on Google Images. I have to say, they aren't that bad. In fact, they are significantly better than anything that I could produce. But it is who the artist is, and not the quality of their work, that has led these historical works to fetch as much as $450,000 in recent auctions. While they weren't phenomenal, they were good enough to get through step one of a two-step process for admission to Vienna's Academy of Fine Arts, which happened to be the prestigious number one art school in all of Austria. They weren't good enough, however, for him to gain admission into the school. He was turned away twice. The school's rejection wasn't brutal, however, as they believed that the applicant should pursue the field of architecture, as Adolf had a strong understanding of how to paint buildings. But he struggled with grasping how to draw humanity. John Gunther, an American art critic, examined some of Hitler's paintings in 1936, before the war broke out. And he had this to say, quote, They are prosaic, utterly devoid of rhythm, color, feeling, or spiritual imagination. They are architect's sketches, painful and precise draftsmanship, nothing more. No wonder the Vienna professors told him to go to an architectural school and give up pure art as hopeless. We can once again examine this moment as evidence of Adolf's deeply entrenched personality faults. The Vienna Academy of Fine Arts was the only art school that he applied for. He wasn't willing to try elsewhere or lower his own personal standards in order to achieve his dream. It is the equivalent of a decent student only applying to Harvard without a single backup school. He never attempted to follow the examiner's advice about a career as an architect, despite George Costanza's belief that it was among the most prestigious of professions. Within one year of his rejection, Adolf Hitler was living the life of a homeless, starving artist in Austria's capital city. His time in Vienna between 1908 and 1914 would be marked by working odd jobs for meager wages and selling his art as postcards on the side streets. These years would fundamentally alter the trajectory of his life. It wasn't a short time either. 
Adolf spent five long years filled with disillusionment and despair. Although he had access to his father's pension, he lived a pointless life, wandering through each day without any purpose or plan. He made no effort to get a regular job. He believed that he was above the normal 9 to 5. Again, that lack of structure from his home life and his mother's dreams for him convinced him that he was destined for more. Additionally, as a high school dropout, he was unqualified for most professions. A friend, August Kubzek, whose personal diaries give us the most knowledge of what Adolf was up to during this period of life, described him as a night owl who slept till noon each day, and then enjoyed the sights of Vienna. They would regularly discuss his ideas on everything from city planning to social reform each night, convinced, like most teenagers are, that they had all the answers. He never had any of the discipline to finish these ideas, however. He started his own opera, but never finished. He even started a project which attempted to redesign the entire city of Vienna, but he stopped well short of the finish line. By 1910, Hitler was living in a poor home for men, and was described by those who knew him as undisciplined and moody, eager to discuss politics, but quick to fly into a rage if you disagreed with him. This account is furnished by Reinhold Hanisch, who acted as his art agent while they both lived together in the shelter. Hanisch's account was published in multiple outlets after Hitler came to power in Germany. The Fuhrer's response, upon reading it, was one of rage at the idea of an individual from his past surfacing to pierce the personality cult which he had created. Hanisch was hunted down and killed on Adolf's personal orders. It is clear that this time in his life was filled with significantly more downs than ups. He likely suffered from depression and hysteria. Hysteria is a psychological disorder that was first officially recognized by the medical community in 1880. However, early diagnosis was exclusively limited to women. Hysteria is defined as a psychological disorder whose symptoms include conversion of psychological stress into physical symptoms, selective amnesia, shallow, volatile emotions, and overdramatic or tension-seeking behavior. During World War I, Hitler would go on to suffer from hysterical blindness, temporarily losing his eyesight. As far back as his Vienna days, however, he experienced multiple symptoms that could be attributed to the disorder. There are two other interactions that are necessary to discuss regarding Adolf Hitler's time in Vienna. First, he encountered large populations of ethnic, traditional Jews. His men's shelter was located next to a Jewish community. The shopkeepers that hired Adolf the most, whether it was to sell postcards or shovel snow for them, happened to be Jewish. Most of the entrance examiners at the Vienna Academy of Fine Arts also happened to be Jewish. Obviously, it is impossible to discuss Hitler without examining his violent anti-Semitism. Most of that, however, will be saved for a later episode. By all accounts, the majority of his interactions with the 200,000 Jews among Vienna's population of 2 million 
were largely positive. There are no obvious events that serve to prepare us for what is to come. Hitler, however, claimed in Mein Kampf that it was during this time that he experienced a great spiritual awakening, part of which was his growing anti-Semitic identity. Far from the bigoted racist that he would become, Hitler initially described himself as a cosmopolitan bohemian, i.e. a believer in the positivity of multiculturalism upon his arrival to Vienna. His parents exhibited no outward signs of any issues regarding individuals of different races or nationalities. As his situation worsened, however, he increasingly looked outward for individuals to blame for his own difficulties. He began to distance himself from his own cosmopolitan beliefs after he began to associate them with that of his deceased and despised bureaucratic father. The second interactions were more significant and likely began him down the path which ended in the Holocaust. After witnessing a protest march in the city, he began attending rallies for a party called the Social Democrats. From this group, he took away a belief in the importance of large-scale political rallies and how effective propaganda and fear could be if they were properly utilized as political weapons. He also began to pay close attention to the party of the Pan-German Nationalists and Christian Social Party. These early political influences captured the attention and imagination of a young man who felt he was destined for something greater. Although he felt the tug of association, he never formally joined either group. At this point, he was just a disassociated voyeur of politics. Two individual political influences stand out from this time, despite the fact that Hitler never directly interacted with either of them. The first of whom was George von Schoner, who was a staunch advocate and defender for ethnic Germans living in Austria. He articulated a number of nationalistic views that Adolf held from his days living alongside the German border. He wasn't a perfect match for the 23-year-old would-be artist, however. They initially differed on their viewpoints of Catholicism, as Schoner was a strong believer in Protestantism. It is unclear exactly when Adolf lost his faith, but by the end it is clear that he only utilized religion for his political purposes. Adolf would go on to claim that Schoner's mistake was publicly criticizing religion as it turned individuals against him. He viewed this as a political blunder that he would prove to be unwilling to repeat. Schooner also held strongly anti-Semitic beliefs and pursued racist policies against the Jewish citizens of Austria. His position was clear on this as his party expelled anyone who had any Jewish relatives or friends. Vienna's mayor was another major influence on Adolf the politician. Karl Luger was an extremely popular, openly anti-Semitic leader. If you can't tell by this point, Vienna was not particularly known for its tolerance during this time period. Handsome Karl, as he was nicknamed, rode his popularity with women to mayoral victory five times. 
He was one of the first to figure out that even though women didn't have the right to vote, they held great influence over the men that did. Like Hitler, Luger cultivated a public image of a single man that was wholly married to the nation. Luger is a complex historical figure, however. Many of his close friends were Jewish, who had to have talked to him about how offensive it was each time he publicly referred to Budapest with the slur of Judapest. Close confidants have explained that his actions were all for show, claiming that he was in reality warm-hearted and loved all equally. So what could explain both his racist rhetoric and governing record? Simple. Like most politicians, Luger had an intense desire to stay in power. Vienna's residents were anti-Semitic, and in a democracy, it is a smart political calculus to be a voice for the majority. Historians are not sure if Adolf learned anti-Semitism from Luger, or if he learned that anti-Semitism has value in a method of mobilizing a large population for political support. The results remain tragic either way. Janet Stemwadell, an ethics writer for Forbes, attempts to settle our question regarding time travel and Adolf Hitler. She falls on the side of using her time travel capabilities for something other than murder. Believing in nurture over nature, she writes that removing one person from the equation wouldn't be enough to stop the avalanche that engulfed the world during this era. She writes, Why are you killing a baby instead of trying to change his environment to prevent him from developing the genocidal dictator phenotype? She asked this before continuing, Indeed, paying attention to baby Hitler's environment should give you more reason to doubt whether killing him is a surefire way to eliminate the potential harms of an adult Hitler. Is there any reason to think that Adolf Hitler's environment as he grew up was unique, she questions? That his immediate family embodied parenting that was uniquely genocide-friendly? If Adolf Hitler had not survived to adulthood, do you think it impossible or even unlikely that someone else raised in the same cultural environment could not have taken the same political path, might have advocated for and instituted the same genocidal policies? Hitler did not have to twist nearly as many arms in implementing his will as one might have hoped after all. If you want to say the immediate Hitler family and the environment they created inevitably led to the grown-up Hitler of history, then what kind of influence do you suppose they would exert on their extended family and the larger community if a time traveler from the future showed up to kill their baby? She finishes with, If instead you lay the blame for Hitler's trajectory on the environment created by the culture, are you prepared to kill all the Austrian baby boys of Hitler's generation, just to be safe? That is a step that I hope you would be unwilling to take, at least at this point in Adolf's life. At this point in our story, 
It is clear that Adolf Hitler, a starving artist in Vienna, Austria, is deeply disturbed and frustrated with the status quo. It is also equally clear that he is in no position to directly influence change. That would change, however, in 1914, as the world went to war. Our next episode will explore Adolf Hitler's rise to power, beginning with his involvement in World War I, then proceeding to the interwar years, and finishing with his political rise to the German throne.